All right. Welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a little bit sick. I'll try to hit the mute button before my coughs. Not COVID. Been tested repeatedly. Um, I'll introduce my guest in a minute. but I'm Jesse Single, uh, podcaster, journalist. You can check out my stuff at jessesingle.substack.com. I had a long piece go up this week about uh, this controversy involving a paper on puberty blockers and hormones and trans youth. Obviously a controversial subject. My last call in room was actually uh, also about that. You should also check out my podcast, Blocked and Reported with Katie Herzog. That's sort of my uh, main gig these days. Uh, today, we will be, we're joined by guest, Jamal A., that's what you're going by, right, Jamal? There we go. What's up, Jamal? Hey, what's up, man? Uh, so Jamal uh, is with uh, Democratic Socialists of America, and he's with a branch of it um, that I've been keeping an eye on. I don't know much about the subject, but it's called the the Class Unity Caucus, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, so Class Unity is... Uh, we were originally founded as a DSA caucus, but now we kind of uh, we we allow members in who aren't in DSA too because we recognize that in a lot of places DSA chapters are just too far gone. We don't want to kind of force people yeah. to bash their heads well, let, against them. So. I, I want to get to that, but let, just tell us a little bit about just give us the the brief sketch of your bio and how you became a DSA member in the first place. And you're based in Chicago, correct? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, basically, I think like a lot of people, I was politically activated by the Bernie 2016 campaign. Um, and I think like a lot of people, basically Bernie called himself a democratic socialist. I liked what he was saying about Medicare for all, about unions, about working conditions and so on and so forth. And, uh, and I joined DSA because it seemed like that's where the action was. It seemed like that was the, uh, you know, sort of the natural political home. And a lot of other people joined around the same time. There was a huge membership surge in 2016, 2017, subsequent to the Bernie campaign, um, and uh, and yeah, and at, and at first, at least in Chicago, things were pretty good. Like Chicago DSA was a reasonably highly functioning organization um, until probably mid 2019 or so. When it was then. well functioning, what kind of uh, activism and, and policy work were you guys working on? So uh, we managed to get six uh, socialists elected to city council, uh, which was a pretty, you know, pretty big deal. It's a major city. Um, each ward in Chicago is, you know, tens of thousands of people. So um, we were mobilizing a lot of volunteers, got knocked doors. Um, you know, the the aftermath of that has been a little bit disappointing in terms of how they've comported themselves once in office. But, you know, at the time, the organization was was pretty solid, I'd say. Um, and then, you know, there was other stuff. Uh, you know, people were, were doing work around trying to lift the ban on rent control uh, in Chicago. So there was housing stuff. Um, yeah, there was, a, there was a bunch of just good, solid social democratic initiatives uh, that were being coordinated within Chicago DSA that were attracting a lot of just regular people who honestly just wanted to make, you know, life a little bit better. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like when you say DSA exploded in size, if memory serves, it's like... It, it multiplied by maybe like 10 times. It, I think it went from like 30,000 people to the where it had been mired for like maybe decades to like well into the six figures. I think it was the maybe the single biggest beneficiary organization wise of like the Bernie revolution or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, I'll look definitely. up the numbers while you while you continue, but I just want to know yeah. like, this was not a small increase in members. Yeah, it was huge. And, you know, I, your numbers may be right. The numbers that I had in my mind were actually, um, more like, it was like a couple thousand, like maybe 10,000 or less, 
um, before Bernie, and then it exploded up to, you know, in short order, it exploded up to 50, 60, 70,000 people. Um, recently, it almost hit 100,000, but numbers have been going down. Um, and I think a lot of that is sort of paper members that are kept on the rolls. So I think the organization has probably decreased uh, since its peak. Gotcha. At this point. So I have from the Hill 2018. Since November 2016, this was two years later, nationwide membership jumped from 5,000 to 40,000. So I was okay. Uh, I didn't have it quite right. Anyway, 5,000 to 40,000, eight times as many people, largely because of Bernie. And then also there's other figures like AOC that I think draw a lot of excitement to the group, right? Yeah. Um, so AOC is interesting because she was sort of. Um, DSA kind of adopted her um, as sort of like a, a, a next big thing after Bernie, right? Because, um, you know, Bernie was kind of out of the limelight between the presidential elections and DSA wanted to be electing members to Congress and politicians around the country. And AOC is kind of a really good example of part of where DSA started to go wrong, because right now, I don't know if you guys saw AOC recently was picking a fight with that, uh, with the union leader, uh, you know, the Amazon union leader in Staten Island on Twitter over something. I, I can't even remember the the context, but it's like, I don't know why she's doing that. AOC is honestly a little bit embarrassing at this point. There was, yeah, I don't know the details, but I mean, when there was the possibility of them building a headquarters in Queens, it was sort of complicated, like the class dynamics, because a lot of like organized labor, I know in that borough, I think wanted it because they thought it would promote yeah. a good job. So I, I can't get into that. It was complicated, but yeah, sure. okay. Um, there's so much to talk about, but, but when was the class unity caucus created and why just give us the backstory of why this sort of subgroup of DSA exists. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, initially, at least in Chicago, uh, things were pretty okay. There were some warning signs, but the organization was was pretty functional, uh, at least where I was. Um, but things started to kind of slowly fall apart. And by the summer of 2019, I'd say, uh, it was clear that a lot of the energy that had brought in, you know, regular ass working people who just wanted, you know, Medicare for all and unions, um, a lot of that energy had started to subside and the act the most, the most vocal part of the membership was starting to be these kind of ultra identitarian, um, you know, largely middle-class millennial, you know, left white activists, the sort that you might find on a college campus. Um, and so I, and, you know, some other people who I had been in contact with were like, oh man, we kind of saw the writing on the wall. We were like, we need to start organizing something to push back against this stuff, the, the more egregious stuff. The, the, when you talk about the egregious stuff, how does this – so but when you say identitarian, to me, that's like basically the belief system that individual characteristics, uh, usually other than class, things like race yeah. and, and gender and blah, all that, everyone knows, the progressive stack, that that should – considerations of them should be like – at the forefront of what we talk about and how we talk about injustice. Right. Is that more or less right. a working definition? Yeah, pretty much. And, and you know, I think that Bernie 2016 was not an identity politics campaign. And I think that's why he was so successful at reaching so many people was because he was really focused at, at the very least in the 2016 campaign on bread and butter economic issues, on class solidarity, on mobilizing the working class against the billionaires, right? Um, <laughs> that was good. He, Thank you. The the identity politics stuff was not part of that initial appeal to an organization for, an, you know, to an organization like DSA. But it kind of slowly, you know, grew within the organization because there was no immune system against it. You had a lot of well-intentioned middle class liberals who kind of just 
this stuff was in the water. This they remember it from their sociology seminar in college. You know, this is the kind of stuff that that they've been immersed in on social media. You know, on Twitter, on on um, you know various other social media platforms. So when this stuff started to kind of grow, there wasn't this kind of innate defense system against it. There wasn't this kind of level of political consciousness to say, hey, this isn't actually socialism, right? Like socialism is about class solidarity. What you guys are pushing right now is not about class solidarity. It's not about class at all. And in fact, it's anti-solidaristic, right? So um, you're saying yeah. like when, when someone shows up at the at a, a regular meeting or an organizing event and they try to steer efforts in like a more identitarian direction. It's just, it's hard to say no to that. Why is it hard to say no? So, and I don't think this is unique to DSA or the left, right? I think that we're seeing this kind of phenomenon happen in a lot of uh, what we call in class unity, we call iron triangle institutions, which are academia, media, and NGOs. Um, these institutions share a particular orientation towards a particular subset of the middle class. Uh, you know, we can go into more specifics about what defines them. But um, I think, you know, it's pretty clear if, if you've had any experience with, as I'm sure you have, with newsroom politics, um, you know, given the kind of articles that you like to publish, I'm sure that you've got plenty of pushback against them that initially was like, well, you know, I can I can sort of make the argument as to why what I'm doing is is proper and why it's important to kind of set aside these identitarian considerations and just kind of drill down to the facts of the matter. But you get suspiciously large amounts of pushback in these contexts when you try to do that. And I think that, you know, the reasons for that are complicated. Like, why is it that this particular sector of society is so vulnerable to these identitarian appeals? Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone knows for sure. I have some suspicions. I think that a lot of it has to do with this is very useful for HR. This is very useful for labor discipline. And so yeah. people in newsrooms, in in universities, like um, in, in workplaces like this, where a lot of your ability to make a living depends on kind of your informal reputation among your peers, you're very vulnerable to this kind of any kind of slander or allegation that you're racially insensitive or you're sexist or what have you, right? And so people who work in these kind of fields are highly susceptible. And people who spend a lot of time on Twitter managing their, their, you know, their reputation are highly susceptible to these kind of allegations. And I think that may be part of the reason why uh, left organizations like DSA are so vulnerable to them and so kind of unable to defend themselves and their political priorities when confronted with this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I've got some thoughts on that, but let's take a call from Lance and see what uh, what Lance has to say. What's up, Lance? Oh, Lance, you're going to want to um, unmute yourself. There we go. Hi. Yeah, hey. hi, interesting conversation. So what I find fascinating, and I think that this whole thing with Amazon unionizing, it's huge. It's even going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't mean, of course, the cause will get bigger nationwide, but I mean the importance of it. Now, two things I'll say. So Christian Smalls was a manager, more like a supervisor. His job was to train the new people. He had been there five years. Okay. He was pro Amazon. He said that, and it was very clear that there were certain people that were, you know, Amazon folks that didn't turn over in a year or two that had a very strong working class ethic about, yeah, I'm for the workers, you know, even though they were intelligent, they were moving up the, you know, the, the chain there. Okay. He applied. He said, he just said this. There's a live thing going on of their celebrating, talking about the next phase and all. And he said, I applied for management, you know, certain time management, whatever you want to call it, not just supervisory. 
but he he said salaried as opposed to wage 50 mm-hmm. times 50 times and he said i know it's because i have my working class ethic eh, they didn't want that my point is that it's interesting that they underestimated him he wasn't just some schlep who was going in there physically drained and, oh boy i hate amazon he was pro amazon he was trying to work his way up through the ranks now i don't know if he's a socialist or not i don't know if he's a you know political at all but this didn't happen because of unions you know top down obviously like a bessemer and they, they went to Bessemer. He said, and we learned that these guys come in, they're not communicating day to day with the workers. There was no connection. But when it's the workers themselves, it's the only way it's going to work. And so they underestimated him because he was a guy wearing a hoodie and he was black. And they said, you know, he, there's no way that he can stand up to our sophisticated neoliberal, you know, juggernaut. And the reason he did is because they trusted him. There's a woman in Washington in Seattle. I wish I could remember her name. She's, uh, you know, she's a Democratic, she's a socialist, and she doesn't play games, and she's got the, the hardcore support of the people. So when you look at somebody like AOC, first of all, I'm old enough to remember the 60s. There was no squad. There was LBJ, Martin Luther King, and then there was a movement. So the idea that, okay, so think about this. In 1968, right, during the 60s, the Democrats were way much in control. Nixon had to do all kinds of liberal things with the EPA, which talked about a lot now, not because he all of a sudden, you know, had a uh, you know, uh, 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 me, you know, meeting with God moment because he had to, because the same people who controlled things then are the same people that always through history control things eventually. And that's the elites, not the 0.1% and the masses, but that 10% and that 10% of suburban liberals, they wanted clean air and clean water. It was the sixties and that's what they wanted. Then they all became successful in this generation. I, whatever happened, I think part of it is because we have multi-generation suburbanites and we have very little connection between people anymore just because of the natural way of geography yeah and so the, the same elites that want biden they wanted the liberal stuff in the 60s but now they don't and so it wasn't about people there was no squad you had lbj yeah. liberal agenda you had a liberal congress you had overwhelmingly like 65 or 70 democratic senators overwhelmingly in the house uh, as well but it wasn't. It was through them that stuff got done. It wasn't because yeah. of them. Thank you, Lance. Uh, no, those are those are interesting points. I haven't um, followed the. Uh, have you been following the Amazon stuff, Jamal? I, I can't. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. and I think Lance Lance brings up a, a good point um, that you know the AL, the success of Amazon labor union was not due to support from the existing union bureaucracy, and it was not due to support from left organizations like DSA. DSA had absolutely nothing to do with that. This was entirely a ground up, you know, working class or uh, organized uh, initiative. And it succeeded where, D- where DSA and other left organizations and the bureaucratic labor unions failed, I think, because there wasn't this kind of um, this middle class layer kind of um over the working class base, kind of like trying to direct them, trying to tell them what to do. And I think that we're seeing this as kind of a a growing cleavage in politics, not just in the United States, but around the world, that as working class organizations and parties become more and more infiltrated by middle class activists and bureaucrats and staffers, they lose their connection to their working class social base. And that working class social base then loses political power, basically, because it doesn't have a vehicle to exert its will. And I'm hopeful that ALU is kind of the sign that the working class is getting back into the game and organizing itself rather than kind of being organized from from the top down by by middle class, uh, you know, elements. 
Are you? Uh, I want to see if you're sympathetic to the the theory I have, and if anyone else has comments or questions, feel free to jump in the queue. We have plenty of room right now. Um, my um, excuse me, my my critique of a lot of like present day racial justice talk and economic justice talk is like it does seem like not just middle class, but maybe upper middle class or even higher people are exerting a lot of gravity on the situation um, and on the conversation. Like it seems like the stuff we talk about, like you know exactly what the diversity politics are going to be at work or microaggressions at work or whether or not people are getting harassed on Twitter. A lot of these issues really only matter to people who are already doing pretty well and who are already in like comfortable um, white collar jobs. So do you think that's a reasonable approximation of what's going I, on? I think, I think that's exactly right. And we actually wrote an article on our website, classunity.org, called The Left's Middle Class Problem that kind of goes into this in a little bit more detail. But basically, identity politics is a middle class politics. Um, that That is the social base for this sort of politics. If you look at polling, you see that by far the most sort of sympathetic to identitarian pol- political styles and, and policies are the middle and upper middle classes. You look at the institutions. And I, think produce- wh- I think whites more than any other racial group. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Right, a hundred percent. And you well, know, I should say white. I should say white liberals. Uh, not, uh, when right. you control for yeah. a party, this is like the whole Matt Iglesias, a great, great awakening yeah. thing. But yeah, sorry, didn't mean to talk over you. Right, right, yeah, yeah, definitely. And and so, and you look at the institutions that produce and and promulgate this ideology: the universities, the media, social media. Obviously, universities are highly educated, middle and upper middle class. Newsrooms these days, in the past, maybe not so much, but these days, overwhelmingly highly educated, elite colleges, you know, upper and upper middle class families. That problem's um, gotten way worse in just in, in a very definitely. short time. Like it's more than just kid, kids like me who can do unpaid internships and so on. Right, right. And you look at who uses Twitter. Like Twitter has a huge uh, upper middle class skew compared to the population at large. And Twitter and other forms of social media are, are I think, very um, – they're very important in spreading this ideology. Um, yeah. Uh, cool. Let me, let's grab uh, Meg. Meg, what sure. is up? Hey. So my question to you is this, this caucus that you're a member of – Roughly, what is the demographic makeup? It, uh, you know, does it does it seem very diverse between gender and race, or is it still majority white males or or majority men? Um, so I would say that compared to the population of the DSA at large, um, we're maybe a little bit more working class, um, maybe a little bit more racially diverse, maybe a little bit more male. But um, I'm not sure that that the difference is large enough on any of those subjects that I would be sort of willing to to say it's outside the the general random variance. You know, DSA, DSA um, is pretty is is whiter than it should be relative to like the working class racial demographics, right? Right, and that's because DSA is not a working class organization; it's a middle class organization, right. right? And so when DSA identitarians uh, insist that DSA has a racial demographic problem. It really just has a class makeup problem. The The problem with DSA is that it's a middle class organization. It has middle class politics and the middle class is disproportionately white and Asian. So, of course, DSA is going to be disproportionately white and Asian. Um, so I, I'm not going to say that class unity is wildly different from a de- demographic standpoint. Um, uh, but I would say that we are more willing to confront the reality that we're not representative of the working class. Um 
you know, not just kind of from a superficial, oh, you know, are there X number of, of, you know, African American people in the room, but from a more serious, like, what does our class make up? Like, do we have actual working class people who work, you know, at Amazon warehouses in the room versus, uh, you know, in DSA, a lot of the time there is no, there is no conception of working class versus middle class. There's this kind of fantasy that, well, if I work for a wage, even if I'm a computer programmer, you know, like I'm working class, I have the same interests as the Amazon warehouse worker, right? Which is well, just not true. It, it's also interesting because some of the unionization fights in newsrooms, um, major media outlets, like when they try to unionize, there's, there's definitely completely legit issues there involving pay and involving fairness, but they often get mired in like, exactly this stuff we're talking about, like much more esoteric stuff involving a very particular way of talking about race and identity. And I don't know, I'm just thinking of like, if I was, if I, I'm freelance now, if I was still in one of these newsrooms, I, I would wonder, why should I be invested in a union that's literally calling for the bosses to have more authority to fire people <laughs> right, for like right. writing insensitive stuff? It seems like the opposite of what a union should be. A hundred percent. And, and this is, you know, I experienced this when I was a graduate student and, um, I was involved in the effort to organize a grad student union. And they had to, a friend of mine, uh, who, who is Israeli had to bring me in because I'm Palestinian to a meeting so that I could say, Hey guys, we should not be fixating on BDS for our union. Wait, this was, wait, these were, these were like graduate students making very shitty salaries because they do everywhere. Right. They wanted to make right. this about BDS rather than yes. just like meat and potato stuff. Right. There was there was a a push inside the proto union to to try to have a hard line on BDS and Jesus like Christ. university must divest from everything. And I was like, you know, I I agree with that, but this should not be our priority. Well, it, right? It's just you but, you can imagine if you're facing down the administrators at this university. Aren't they licking their chops when your list of demands include stuff having nothing to do with like what they pay you and stuff that's probably never going to happen, frankly? Well, and if you look at union busting consulting firms, right, they always like they they love this. Like when Walmart or Amazon is hiring these consulting firms and paying them millions and millions of dollar contracts, they know that introducing divisive identity politics stuff. Um, to the conversation is a surefire way to undermine um, solidarity among the workforce. And it's a surefire way to undermine interest in any unionization effort because people, you know, workers get a whiff of this. They're like, okay, I see what this is going to be. It's another one of these stupid, you know, trainings I'm going to have to go to. It's another thing that management is going to be breathing down my neck over. I'm not interested. Right. And yeah, this is the, the union busters know this and they understand this. And I think you look at how Amazon responds to this, wave of unionizing, I am absolutely certain they're going to double down on the kind of diversity rhetoric as an attempt to scupper the union. That, that's it. It, okay, it reminds so, me of their... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. I didn't mean to talk over you. Yeah. I, well, I, I have two more questions. Um, go sure. for it. I guess I'll start with the first one because I don't know, but what is the gender makeup of DSA and then, of course, of your caucus as well then? Um, so I don't know the gender makeup of DSA. Um, people talk about DSA as if it's uh, disproportionately male. Um, I'm not sure that's actually true. Uh, it might be. I, I honestly don't know. I, I would say the caucus is a little bit disproportionately male, like maybe 55, 45, something like that. But it's not it's not like large enough of a discrepancy that I would say it's it's outside the realm of, you know, just random noise. Okay, and then so my third question then is in terms because you talked about how you're what you focus in it's people who are more 
working class. But the reality is a lot of people with college degrees still end up at Amazon. So when you yeah. say working class, do you truly mean people who don't have college degrees or first generation or immigrants? Or is it really people who previously probably would have been office workers but have fallen, like many people have, down a socioeconomic rank? Yeah, that's actually that's a really a good question. Working class. Yeah, so that's a very good question. And we go into considerable detail in our article on the left's middle class problem on exactly this question. But basically, in the US, we have a tendency to treat college attainment as a proxy for class status, um, which is not really correct. And so we try to use a more Marxist definition where the middle class is a sector of unproductive labor that works to discipline and educate the working class, right? Um, and so someone can, uh, you know, have a college degree and still, you know, work in an Amazon factory and they are working class, right? Or if, if you're working in an Amazon warehouse as a, you know, you, you, you pack boxes or whatever, you are working class, even if you have a college degree. But it's also important to recognize that the university system is an apparatus for propagandizing people into a certain, um, let's say, middle-class ethos or middle-class self-conception. And this has this can work on people even if they wind up not having middle-class jobs in the future. Um, like, there are a lot of people who uh, internalize this sort of suite of middle-class discursive norms, etiquette norms in college, and they take them with them throughout their lives um, as a sort of way to distinguish themselves from you know, they're, they're working class neighbors, working class friends or working class colleagues. So, uh, yeah, we, we go into this in more detail in our article, but yeah, it is a complicated question. Um, and, uh, yeah, sorry. I don't know if that answered your question. Well, no, it, it does. But that, that brings me to my point, which is, this is my hunch and correct me if I'm wrong, but your caucus, even if it focuses on working class is probably made up of people who have at least some level of college attainment and all of the cultural values that go with it. That is not going to resonate with people who are not like that, but who are my, still my, working class. I mean, yeah, sorry. not to talk over you, but my, my sense is Jamal is acknowledging that and is saying DSA, including his caucus, has a problem with that, but class unity is an attempt to sort of address that problem and make DSA more of a legitimately working class org. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's a, a fair way of saying it, Jesse. Like, we're we're absolutely not in denial about the fact that our membership is um, is you know, more middle class than the national average. Um, but I think that that's a reality that pretty much every political organization has to confront because there's a structural reason for that. Working class people work longer hours. They have less flexible employment. They don't have as much time to devote to politics. And so you, you have to start from the recognition that any political organization is going to tend towards middle class membership naturally just because of structural factors. And not not and just any political organization, that. literally anything that requires free time to attend. Right. Exactly. A hundred percent. And so you have to take specific steps to try to mitigate that. And that's exactly what class unity is. Like Jesse says, we're trying to figure out what those steps might be so that an organization like DSA or any other left organization could appeal to a larger working class membership. Uh, Right. Here's my tip to you. I don't mean to sound like a bitch, but I, and I'm I'm part of this. But you're a very art, articulate person. It's, it's you're clearly very educated. Things like that. That is not going to resonate with people who aren't educated. There's there's. I feel like there is still this bias. Bias isn't the word, but we we still we aren't really willing to acknowledge that 
people from a true working class background will not resonate with the rhetoric and sort of the verbiage we use and the word, like even the word class unity, I just can't imagine your average person who doesn't care that much about politics will be, you know, pulled in by a phrase like class unity. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And it's something that internally we've discussed a lot like there we we have um, sort of an internal effort to rewrite our statement of principles right now. And this is something that people are discussing. I will say that if you want to appeal to a working class demographic, you're not appealing to them just by having a website with some articles on it. Right. You're appealing to them by going out into their communities, into their workplaces and, you know, just being personable and speaking to them in, in language that they understand. And as you get more working class members, those members will then be able to recruit more and more working there, class people, there, right? So, there was a, you, um, need to be willing to engage with the, you need to be willing to engage with the culture, though. And the reality is people with college education, whether or not they realize it, look down upon working class culture. This is what Trump has done so well. Trump is not working class, but he is willing to debase himself, for lack of a better term, because I don't mean to demean working class. But... The reality is, is like you, you truly have to embrace and, and, you know, like I, I wonder how many people within your DSA group look down on people w- who aren't back. I might, I might have like an, an example that might be useful. There was a New Republic article about some of these divisions and uh, things got pretty heated. I think it was the East Bay DSA chapter, like, um, you know, Bay Area. And um, there was a plan to do a, um, a brake light clinic, like basically set up on the side of a road and, and replace people's brake lights and teach them how they can get pulled over unfairly if they don't have their brake lights replaced. And then there were people within the caucus who were more from like, I think slightly more middle-class background saying, no, that's white saviorism. We can't do that. <laughs> so that's a good example. Like that's the kind of thing that would be of service to someone who needs their brake light replaced and you can give them a DSA pamphlet that's the kind of outreach where, like, you're not looking down at them. I think you're just trying to provide them a service as a way into your organization, right? Right. And so I, I think that basically both sides of that argument, sort of the brake lights thing, I think kind of misses the point generally because um, a middle-class organization cannot structure itself as a charity organization and expect to win a working-class membership. You know, you have to be you have to be providing a way for working class people to actually be engaged in decision making, to actually get something, you know, out, out of ongoing participation in the organization. Um, and so, you know, like that can be as simple as, you know, having barbecues and making friends. You know, people like to make friends. People like to to hang out. People like to, you know, we have a weightlifting group that meets, you know, uh, three times a week. Like people like to do stuff and have community. And once you sort of attract a diverse, socioeconomically diverse array of people, you'll find that people have ideas about like, hey, you know, like, you know, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, you know, knows this other, um, you know, uh, knows this other guy who works at this place. And like, that's how you actually start, um, you know, attracting a working class membership. It's not about your, not so much about your rhetoric or, or your name or what's on your website. It's about how you actually. People want to do stuff. The they want, they want to, they want right. to have fun. And yeah. Yeah. To me, the break, uh, Meg, I'm going to let you go just so it gets a nice color. But to me, the break light thing is more of a way to introduce people to the existence of the organization than hope that yeah. other stuff follows. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, Patrick, go ahead. Hey, I uh, hope you guys are both having a good afternoon. Thank you, we are. Uh, so I have a question about, so the talk today has been a lot about kind of the, I guess the soul searching that the DSA is kind of doing. And, and I realize that's important because if the group can't decide on 
what like it's supposed to be about. It's going to have all sorts of concept creep and not kind of decide on the mission. But in light of kind of like substantial roads, I guess my question would be kind of where do you see the DSA kind of going forward, at least in terms of policy? Like, for example, the thing Jesse just meant, that's a good thing for kind of a local activist to want to do in order to help the community. But it's not kind of like widespread policy goal of changing law. Like, is the goal of the DSA to try to beefing up uh, the NLRA in order to make sure that unions have, have an easier time organizing, expand what like union membership can be under it, changing the law. Is it trying to create more unions? Like what's kind of, I guess the right now. That's a good, that's a good question. What do you think? Jamal? Yeah, definitely. So um, I'm speaking in an individual capacity now. I'm not representing class unity. You know, we'll make our decisions via internal democratic debate. So I, I don't know what, direction the caucus will decide to go. But I personally think that the most important priority for the left organization is to help um, to help people unionize, because I think that unionization campaigns like the one that we just saw at Amazon and, and Staten Island um, are the single most important thing that you can do to help build working class power. Um, and obviously, it would be nice if we could change the law, if we could pass the PRO Act to make unionization easier. But I don't think that's going to happen until there is actually an upsurge of unionization around the country that will put the working class in the position to, to press for more beneficial legal terms. Um, I also think that going doubling down on the stuff that Bernie talked about, the Medicare for all stuff, basic social democratic reforms, universal child care, um, the stuff that frankly DSA has not really been talking about that much um, is also a very important thing that, that we should be doing. Now, as to whether DSA is actually going to do that, you know, I honestly don't know. I, I, I have my personally, I have my doubts about DSA's, um, you know, ongoing ability to reform itself. It just seems so paralyzed at the moment, um, internally and so politically incoherent that I'm not really sure DSA, you know, is going to be able to write the ship. But until something else comes along, you know, I'm, I'm happy to engage you, with it, uh, and to try to, I, try to, this help is it an out. unfortunately common occurrence, uh, in lefty spaces, but do you think there's a chance that like the kinds of folks attracted to the unity caucus will, will just form an entirely new thing built from the ground up differently? I mean, it's a possibility, but I mean, the, I think we're all very cautious um, of the tendency of left groups to split and split and split and form little, little, little groups, right? Um, I, I think that at the moment we have an ambivalent relationship with the DSA. If it seems like it's it's a productive way for us to be engaged, we'll engage with it. If it doesn't seem like it's productive, we won't engage with it, in, depending on local context. So that's where we are right now. Um, I, I kind of hold out hope that um, we might see some larger kind of Bernie style movement pop up uh, in the future. Uh, I don't know what form that would take. And at that point, hopefully class unity will be in a position to kind of help that defend that organization from the same kind of internal attacks, um, that basically have crippled DSA. Uh, cool. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate the call. Lance, I'm skipping over you just cause, cause I want to get to new people, but, um, if we have time, we'll, we'll let you back on at the end. Uh, let's go AA for now. Uh, hi. My question is, so I personally ask, what is, uh, how does unity relate to socialism? Do you use the word socialism explicitly? Uh, how do you relate to that? Yeah, so we call ourselves we call ourselves Marxists and socialists uh, in, in our statement of principles in our articles. So we're not afraid to, to call ourselves socialists. Okay, so follow-up question would be, how would you respond to the criticism of you 
that using those words is counterproductive towards your aim, such as the criticism that Bernie Sanders, for instance, alienated a lot more working class people who might have uh, supported his project by calling themselves a socialist. That, that's a timely um, question because there's actually just some reporting um, suggesting that fairly or not, Nancy Pelosi thinks that – and again, this is complicated because the Democratic Party like is – migrates to pretty moderate candidates and positions, but they like Joe Biden, but she thinks some of the socialism talk hurt the party when it comes to Asian and Latino immigrants in general. And you can see why that might be the case. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that I don't think that socialism has a bad reputation. Um, you know, you're, you're probably right from just a public, you know, a, a policy polling perspective that it's not super helpful to be called a socialist. But on the other hand, I do think that Bernie's success showed that it's not an insurmountable obstacle. And to a certain extent, people might actually kind of like it when you are just willing to call you call yourself what you are like it kind of shows an authenticity that other in bernie's case other politicians didn't have right and it kind of jived with his personal branding so i don't really know i'm not a a, a public like a public relations guy i don't really know how the polling shakes out but i just think that's what we are you know we're we have to be honest about it um whether you have to call yourself a socialist to join the organization i mean no like we're not going to sort of police you know if if you agree with our policy the policy that we advocate for and you don't want to call yourself a socialist i don't think anyone would you don't you don't have to you don't have to kiss a photograph of fidel castro to join right <laughs> right well what i would wonder is is it possible to have an organization that's focused on working class issues and the type of things like unionization you're talking about without being explicitly marxist but being welcome to marxist to me that seems like it may be more effective politically yeah I'm well i'm sympathetic think- to that I think you're I think you might be right about that. I mean, that's the populist thesis, right? Um, the issue is, at least from my perspective, is when you have this kind of populist uh, movement, right, that pops up, um, what is keeping it on the straight and narrow? What is keeping it actually oriented towards uh, working class policy goals over the long term? And I think if you look at sort of the history of populist movements that were successful in the United States, um, I think Huey Long in Louisiana is kind of one of the high watermarks of that tradition. Um, his organization immediately collapsed mm-hmm. into just a, a corrupt political machine as soon as he was assassinated, right? Because there was no ideological, there was no sophisticated analysis of what was going on in society that kind of kept that organization kind of, uh, you know, adhering to a certain political path. So that's my fear from just sort of general populism. But I think you're absolutely right that a certain type of party, a mass membership party in the United States would probably not want to call itself the Marxist Socialist Party, right? I think something like Workers' Party is probably the best branding in this country for that sort of party. And then within the Workers' Party, hopefully you would have Marxists and socialists who would try to co- kind of try to keep the, the party focused on on working class concerns um, and not sort of, you know, let it be buffeted this way and that by by outside forces. Thank Thank you for the call. That was a uh, thoughtful question. Sure. Uh, let's wrap up. Lance, uh, you want to get another question? Yeah, to get Jamal. So this, to tell you the truth, if I was given a magic wand and I could start a party, and I'm like left of Bernie Sanders and maybe not quite as far left as Richard Wolff, full Marxist, but I'm you know pretty far left, you know, uh, just about everything, you know, with some exceptions because I'm heterodox, okay? But – I would yep. not set up like a, a, a center, center left, you know, socialist, Marxist, and all the way left. I'd have a couple of right wing parties. 
because you need that balance. Two reasons. Coalitions, of course. You're not going to get everybody to think like a liberal, no matter how good the policies are. Because, partly, not all the good ideas come from the left. Eminent domain, the Kilo decision, where you could take houses and have a high rise, not a, not a highway. It was all the liberals, and there was four at the time, were pro. The only two that voted were like Thomas and Alito or Alito and Scalia or somebody who voted against the Kilo, which advanced eminent domain. So not all the ideas come from the left, you know. And so, uh, number one, and you're not going to somebody in uh, Richard Wolf was talking about this, about somebody, a conversation that he was reported on. Somebody said, you know, a, a Marxist in Europe. And they said, yeah, the guy that's the center left party said, you know, you're, you're hurting us because you're too far left. He said, no, you need us. You can kind of cherry pick what you like and say, geez, what if these guys take over the coalition and the far left do what we want, which is somewhat left. And they said, "Yeah, we're going to keep pushing you to go further what, left." What do you? What, what? Sorry, sorry, Liz, What do you? What do you think about that question, Jamal? Of who is and isn't kosher to ally with? Um, personally, I think that um, we should be flexible about allying with liberals or you know right wingers who are willing to support basic social democratic reforms, while. Keeping in mind the fact that a lot of liberal and right wing politicians who claim this are actually lying. Right. So not so much the politicians, but regular people who consider themselves to be Democrats or Republicans or whatever. If they agree with Medicare for all, if they agree with unions, I mean, by all means, we should welcome them and we should work alongside them. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that there's anyone who agrees with basic social democratic principles who we should consider ourselves to be, you know, too, too hoity toity to, to, yeah, make no, no, no purity testing unnecessarily, right. in other words. Um, well, look, let, let's wrap it up there. Uh, anything you want to plug in terms of the website or what was the name of that article again? I actually want to read that. Yeah, so go to our website, classunity.org, uh, and The Left's Middle Class Problem uh, is the article that we wrote um, that I think it, it might be useful for a lot of people trying to figure out why this identitarian stuff kind of seems to emerge and take over institutions so rapidly. Um, and if you want to join, we got a join link there. Um, we'd be happy to have you. And, uh, and yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, it was a great conversation. Thank you very much, Jamal. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. As always, I just uh, ask if you like what I'm doing here, tell other people about the show, and, uh, of course, I hope you'll tune in next time. And in the meantime, have a great weekend. Farewell. See you.